And you have your Bibles open there to John chapter 17. A few weeks ago, um, we had a service together with New Beginning Christian Church, and um, it was at New Beginning. And uh, the tradition there in, in that church is that the preacher would sit on the front row, and there would be a little table on the front row that he could access that have water or mints or, you know, a good sermon in case he was missing one. And uh, so... Uh, New Beginning is a uh, largely African-American church, and so it's a little bit more rowdy than our church. And uh, so as I was preaching to this congregation, I, I said, well, you know, Robert usually provides water for the visiting minister, but, but I could see that he gave me a five-hour energy just to somehow try to get the, the juices flowing. And so during the meet and greet last week, um, somebody snuck up to the pulpit and put a five-hour energy <laughs> up here on my pulpit. So I've just kept it up here. I'm going to keep it up here for a while, just as a good reminder to uh, keep the energy going here. So thank you, whoever that was. Uh, we're, we're approaching the end here. It's kind of a sad closure. We're getting towards the end of the the book that we've been in for the last several months, and I just want to make sure as we come to it, it's always helpful to go back and, and get the background so, so we know where we are in the text. If you remember, John chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 18 is sort of the, the, the prelude to the whole letter. John is telling you what he's already concluded about Jesus. And so he's not a great mystery writer who leaves you hanging to the very end. He comes in as the author and he says, I want you to know right up front, this is who I think Jesus is. I believe that in, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that the Word became flesh, and that the Word dwelled among us, and that we have beheld Him. He is full of grace and truth. So he starts right off saying, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. It's the gospel. It's the good news about this person. And this person isn't just a person. He's the word. He's the eternal word. And this word has become flesh. And, and he is full of grace and truth. So that's the beginning. But then when you go to chapter 1, verse 19, all the way to the end of chapter 11, what they call, what typically scholars call that is the, the book of signs. And so as you read through these chapters, there's different miraculous signs that take place. The turning of water into wine, the healing of a blind man, and healing of a lamed man, and, uh, and so on and so on. But the, the miraculous signs are specifically designed to point you to a destination. Uh, we've said this before, you don't get to a sign and marvel about the sign. The sign is trying to point you to something that's worth marveling about. And as wonderful as the sign may be, somebody being healed, it's really not as marvelous as the direction it's trying to point you to. And so John has put together these signs. There were many more he could have put together, but he put a string of these together to say, these are the signs to help you see that the person I'm talking about really is Christ the Lord. The last of these signs was John 11, Lazarus being dead four days Jesus says this to his disciples, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, 
so that God's son may be glorified through it. The, the whole purpose of raising Lazarus from the dead was to, so you could see Jesus. So this great sign happens, and it's not meant to rush towards Lazarus. It's meant to rush towards Jesus. And then we come to the last section, uh, John chapter 12 through chapter 20. And this last 10 chapters, John devotes to the last week of Jesus' life. So we have 10 chapters devoted to Jesus' public ministry that lasted around three years. And then we have 10 chapters devoted to one week of Jesus' life. So you get the sense of the weight that John is giving this last week. Lots of important things are, are coming together there. And I need to slow down so that you can pick up more of the detail of what happened in this last week. And so here we are in John chapter 17. Jesus has been in the upper room. He's probably on the move somewhere towards the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember if you if you came out of J- Jerusalem, which is a walled city, and you walked out on the east side, it dropped down into a valley, and on the other side was a little town called Bethany, about two miles away. And in this, this valley is called the Kidron Valley, and on the far side of the valley is a big olive orchard. And in that olive orchard is one particular garden, and that's the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus is walking towards this, towards this location. At some point, he stops and he offers this one last prayer. And it's the longest recorded prayer that Jesus has in the Bible. And it's often referred to as the high priestly prayer. Because Jesus is the great high priest. He, he stands like a priest between God and man. And he spends a lot of his time interceding for his disciples that include us. Almost all commentators break it break the prayer down into three segments. Probably your Bible has it broken down into three different headings. Verse 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his 12 disciples specifically. And then, G, and then chapter Verse 20 through 26, Jesus prays for future believers. He pray, actually prays for us. And the more I just sort of read through this prayer, I just thought, gosh, it's such a huge prayer. And there's so many different things that are so critical to understand. And it was frustrating to find a, a place of focus. But I landed on focusing uh, just really on one word. And it reoccurs several times in the text. And that word is Glory. You notice just beginning in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Whatever that hour is, glorify your Son, that the Son may be glorified through you. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Then verse verse 22 and 24, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me, may be with me wherever I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. Well, when you read these verses together, 
If you're like me, you go, that sounds glorious. But what does it mean? And that can happen. You've had that feeling, haven't you? You say, this, these are some wonderful words. I just don't quite understand what they mean. And so that's why you read them again. You try to study. And so I want to try to unpack what uh, Jesus is talking about here. And it'll take some active listening on your part. When, when, we, when we think about the word glory, it has some different connotations, one of, one of which we think of is praise. Uh, the angels come and they meet the shepherds, and what do they say? Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And so praise be to God, glory to God. They're offering a, the word means praise. But more frequently, the word refers to the presence of God. One of the definitions, God's moral beauty and perfection as a visible presence. So glory means God's moral beauty and perfection as a visible presence. Just some other ways of saying the same thing. The visible demonstration of God's existence. The presence of God. The holiness of God on public display. The weight of God's reality. The complete visible manifestation of God's attributes and character. You see, you get a sense of what the word is typically meaning. It's God shows up, and when God shows up, you're going to say glory. He, he's broken in into the world in some way. And there's several passages that we can think about. Exodus chapter 40. You remember, uh, they have the tabernacle. In the desert, the people have come out of Egypt and now they're in the desert and there's the tabernacle and Moses records this in Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting or the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's not really talking about praise, although that was praiseworthy. It's talking about all the character, all the attributes of God. God's presence showed up in this particular location. The exact same thing happens when Solomon builds the temple in 1 Kings 8. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, this is now in the new temple, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord Filled the temple. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. When you see creation, creation says, I'm not God. But there's someone behind me. There's some designer behind me. So when you see a sunset and say, that's a a glorious sunset. What you're saying is there some person of glory behind that that created that. And so the heavens are saying there really is a God. He's glorious and I'm declaring that he's actually in existence. And then in John chapter 1 verse 14, John says we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. When Jesus showed up, what we got to see is God on display. And we say that in, when we use the word glory. Now, here was a question I had, and I hope it's not much of a rabbit trail, but when, I, when I'm just looking through this text and thinking, okay, the, glo- the glory, the presence of God is so critical. You see it in this text. You see it through the Bible. And I'm asking myself then this question. Why is glory needed? 
Why is the visible demonstration of the reality of God needed? The the heavens declare it. You see different places in the Old Testament that, that God shows up and it's called glory. Jesus comes and he's bringing the glory, the presence of God. But why is this glory needed? Why is this visible demonstration of God's reality needed in the world? And the answers can be found in different places, but Romans 1 and 2 Corinthians 4. See, I'm trying to answer. Their glory has come. John has said it in the beginning. Uh, all this glory is coming into sort of like a, a culminating moment here in this last hour. And I'm asking my question, why is this glory needed? And Paul says this in Romans 1, since the creation of the world, God's visible, invisible qualities... His character, his eternal power, his divine nature. They've all been clearly seen. They've all been understood from what what has been made, but men, so that men are without excuse. Although mankind knew God, they knew God existed, they did not glorify him as God. They didn't give thanks to him. But in their thinking, they became futile. And their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, yet they became fools and exchanged. What did they exchange? The glory of the immortal God for images like mankind and reptiles. You see what happened? A terrible exchange of glory took place. And it's a, it's a cosmic shift took place and under all under the heading or the banner of human wisdom oh we've got this figured out we know what's real underneath that banner this shift of weight this shift of god's reality the shift of his attributes his power his wisdom his love his grace his mercy all of those things shifted away from god and what did they shift to mankind Instead of saying God is really about all these things, we're taking all of his godly attributes and saying, no, he's not at the center of all these things. I'm at the center. And I get all these glorified attributes. I'm really loving. I'm really merciful. I'm really powerful. I'm really at the center of the whole universe. That's what the glory exchange means. So now, instead of God being real... What's really real is ourselves. And that God really doesn't come to bear on our lives. It's like Genesis chapter 11. You remember the Tower of Babel? Everyone's building now their own tower. They're trying to make a name for themselves. It's it's no longer critical that God is known and that we make him known. What's critical is that I am known. That's the most critical thing. And I've got to build a tower to myself so everyone can say he or she is critical. They're important. They have all these wonderful attributes. And so a terrible shift has taken place, and God tells us when that shift takes place, you and I are fools for that shift. Then in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, 
Paul says this, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, Christ has come down. The glory of God is Christ. But there is Satan working against us to blind us. So we have sin working against us, and we have Satan working against us to blind us from the reality of God. And so what happens is some refuse to believe that God even exists. And then others are suspicious of God. Maybe he doesn't really have my best interest in mind. So I've got to take control. I've got to be the person who's at the center I'm not too sure about God. And so what happens is we we take all of his divine attributes, but when they come to us, they get distorted. And so we have these cheap substitutes for God's divine attributes. Money becomes a cheap substitute for the divine attribute of eternal security. See, in God, you can have eternal security, but because we've become the center, we've got to create some security, and largely in our culture, money becomes the means to our eternal security. If I have enough money, then I feel secure, and it's a cheap substitute. Somebody asked Rockefeller, I read this this week, and I'm not going to remember exactly, but John D. Rockefeller, one of the most wealthiest men in American history, somebody asked him, how much money does it take to make a man happy? And you'd think, well, he, he's gotten through that happiness point. So at what point did he go, hey, I reached the happiness point when I had X dollars? And he says, just a little bit more. You see, it's a, it's a cheap substitute. You feel like if I could just have this, then I would feel this eternal security. But that eternal security never is going to come from money. It's meant to come from God. But we've, we've shifted And now we've become the center, and so money becomes a cheap substitute. Sexual promiscuity becomes a cheap substitute for the divine attribute of intimacy and joy. Busyness, fear, anger, anxiety are cheap substitutes for sovereign peace. Religious credentials, manipulation, complaining, being a control freak are all cheap substitute for God's authoritative and absolute power and and these cheap substitutes swing through our lives like a wrecking ball and we just hope that we can hold on to one of these things and if we can just corral them then they'll be the ones that really make us happy but what they do is they cripple us emotionally they cripple us mentally they cripple us spiritually and yet even though once we've got a hold of one of these things and we know it goes poisonous after a while because they all do, instead of turning to God, we say, oh, if we could just have this one more. And yet it's just like a wrecking ball that just keeps swinging through our lives and we're looking for wholeness. We're looking to be complete, but the things we're grabbing hold of are creating holes in our souls. And that's what happened when this shift of glory took place. What can happen when you recognize that is you can come to church and you can say, 
Well, okay, I've been holding on to these things. They're creating holes in my life. And seems like this group called the church might have something. Maybe this Jesus character is somebody worth holding on to. But what frequently can happen, and maybe, and I pray it hasn't, is happening to you. Remember back in John chapter 5, the paralyzed man? And Jesus, the creator of all universe, comes and stands next to the paralyzed man and says, do you want to get well? And what does this man do? He knows he's got these holes. He knows he is physically crippled. He knows he needs help. And he's got the divine power standing right next to him. And what does he ask Jesus to do? Can you get me to the pool? You see what happens? I've come to church and I've used Jesus to get me to this wrecking ball. See, what I want is, to, is get Jesus to get me to get more money. I want Jesus to make sure I'm in control. I want Jesus to make sure I have a sexual partner. I want Jesus. And you see what happens? You're still at the center. So it's very easy to see how the shift of terrible shift of glory has taken place in our lives. Well, that may have all been a rabbit trail. I'm not sure. But, but the, the point of that, the point of really beginning to see glory is you have to understand the desperate situation that you find yourself in and that God must do something that will, will, will open your eyes as the song said this morning, oh, I just need some, some visible demonstration of God's powerful, eternal love. And if that could come in and bury itself in my soul, then I could see. And then I could let go of this wrecking ball. And I could really be whole because I could give God all the divine attributes and he can make me a complete person. Jesus understands all of this, and so when he comes to John chapter 17 in this prayer, he understands from verse 26, Father, the world does not know you. They don't know you because a shift has taken place. They're at the center. You're not at the center, but I know you. And now I'm, I'm praying, verse 1, I'm praying the hour has come. What is this hour? The hour that the Son of God is going to be glorified, and in that that reality, God's reality is going to be manifested at that particular point. What is that hour? The hour has come. The hour that all of creation is waiting for. The hour that all of the Old Testament is pointing to. Jesus is saying, it's right here. This hour that we have planned before the foundation of the earth, here it comes. It's, it's right in front of me. And this hour is the cross. This is the place where you're going to see. This is the place that arrests your attention. This is the place that gets your eyes off of you and, and gets your eyes onto Christ. It's at the cross. And Jesus says, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. In other words, I'm trying to do something here, God, that's going to give weight to your reality. These people have seen all of these signs. 
People stood and watched Lazarus come after out of the tomb and then look at Jesus and say, I think he has a demon. And so we need one final moment that can break through the hardest heart, and that's the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. All of these things put together display the reality of God. And so Jesus is coming forward. We know he's feeling this darkness that's closing in. We're going to see it next week in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's praying, God, glorify your son. I mean, I want to make it. We've come to this hour. We have been waiting an eternity past for this hour. And I want to do something that's really going to display you. I'm praying that you would sustain me in my suffering so that I might be an acceptable sacrifice for sin. I pray that you would resurrect my physical body to prove that I alone have the power to, to defeat death. I pray that you would restore me to the place that I had with you before the foundation of the world so that everyone who comes behind would know if you follow me, you can be reconnected to God. That's what I'm praying for. This, this is the moment. This is the hour. This hour, the crucifixion, is the place where humanity, you and I, get the closest, the, the purest, unveiled face of God. It would be a good sermon series, I think, just to say the attributes of God in the cross. So, so here we're, we're saying the glory of God are, is the character of God, the attributes of God on display. And how you could do that with the cross. God is a just God. He comes out of the cross. God is an all-wise God. He comes out of the cross. God is loving and graceful. Full of grace and full of truth. It comes out of the cross. God is a God of mercy. So as this man who deserves to die is on his side, he looks at that man and says, today is going to be today. You're going to be with me in paradise. I'm going to connect you to the Father. And so you could just go, you, you could spend your whole life at the cross, admiring the attributes, admiring the glory of God. That's why the cross is the center of the of the Christian symbol. It's why when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. In other words, when I came, it wasn't about me. Remember that? I couldn't hardly speak. And it wasn't any particular unusual wisdom. What, is, what does he say? I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified because when i when i proclaim this message this is the point where you get closest to all of the attributes and character of god okay so so now what can't be missed here in jesus talking about and moving towards the cross is that the cross exposes the heart of god if you're going to if you're going to say the cross is the center place the place where you get closest to God's attributes on earth then it displays the heart of God it shows us something about God 
And what it exposes is that God is someone who gives up glory for the benefit of someone else. One of the main things you see about God's character at the cross is he gives up glory for the benefit of other people. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he, he gave. What did he give? He gave his son. Who is his son? The invisible, the visible image of the invisible God. I'm giving up all of my glory. For what purpose? One, to glorify God. But not just that. To give you glory. To make you a real person. To reconnect you with God. To make you alive. To forget holding on to the wrecking balls in your life and holding on to God Almighty through eternity. That's what the gospel is about. One scholar put it this way. The greatest glory comes at the cross because there is no greater demonstration of glory than to give up your glory in order to glorify someone else. The greatest glory comes at the cross because there is no greater demonstration of glory than to give up your glory in order to glorify someone else. And when we see this, it's a complete shock to our senses. It it is diametrically opposed to the way the world operates. The world operates. You feel it, don't you? I want glory. And how do I get glory in this world? I get it. What does Jesus say? How do you get glory? You give it away. See, if you really want life, you got to lose your life. Really want to be first? You've got to serve everyone. See, see, see when he comes down, he, he displays his character... And he shows his disciples how now you're going to live. And it says this in verse 10, I am glorified in them. Now, now Jesus is specifically turning his attention to the, the, the 11 disciples now who are with him. But I think there's application here to us as well. And let's just think about this for a moment. I... He's praying with these these disciples, and he's saying, God, I am glorified in them. Okay, now our definition of glory is the, the weight, the attributes of God made visible. It's not praise, it's re- the reality of God. And so what Jesus is saying is these men are, are making me real on the earth. Through their lives, they're making me come alive, as it would be, to the lives of other people. Now, I think there's a few things, and I'm coming here towards the close, that that I want to make sure we're clear about here. First of all, what, what what a great encouragement this must have been to have been a disciple. To hear this. He's saying we're glorifying him. 
Now, they just came from the upper room. And what was the main discussion in the upper room? Hey, who's going to be the greatest? See, I'm grabbing glory for myself. And he's saying, this not-so-good band here, they're already, in a very small way, they're already giving glory. So we're not looking for the perfect person. Praise the Lord for that. Just a little bit, a little bit of demonstration can demonstrate to a dark world, a little bit of light still shines some light, does it not? And so he's saying to you and me, just a little bit. A little bit of me and you can, can shine out into the world. It doesn't, you don't have to have it all together right now. Just look at the 11 disciples. Secondly, Jesus receives glory, not, not in the sense of addition. You're not going to add to God's reality, right? He can't be bigger than who he is. It's in terms of exposure. I'm, I'm giving glory, meaning I'm, I'm opening people up to the reality of God. Pe- people are actually exposed to the gravity or reality of God when they get into a disciple's presence. You realize that? You hear how unbelievable that is? If you're a disciple of Christ and you go out and you find somebody, a neighbor, a workplace that doesn't know God, you're intersecting their lives opens up the reality of God. It's supposed to bring the the weight and the gravity of God into their lives. That's why Jesus says this this, uh, verse that often we sort of paraphrase, paraphrase, verse 15 through 18, you know, be in the world but not, what does it say, of the world. So that's where we come to that phrase is in these verses. And he's saying, God, I'm not, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. I'm praying that you would keep them in the world, connected to people who don't know you, so that your reality might continue to flow out into the rest of the world. And, and the way I thought about this is, um, and some, some of you techno people will correct me afterwards, because I'm not going to get all the terminology right. I may look like a techno person, but I'm just not... But, you know, if you have a, a Wi-Fi device, right, Just let's just say an iPad, it used to be that you needed to, in order to connect to the Internet, you had to be in a Wi-Fi, what do, you, what do they call it? A hotspot, right? This is called a hotspot. might be in your house, might be in an Internet cafe, might be someplace, but somebody has this signal that when you get, 60 feet from or inside the four walls or something, you turn on your iPad and bingo, you have Wi-Fi. But the reason you have it is you're connected to a hotspot. But you now know, or the, the techno people know, that what's happening is through your cell phone, you can become a hotspot. So you don't have to go to an Internet cafe. I just can be come alongside somebody and I can use their connection to get connected myself. So now it's not just Port City Java that has it or your home. And it pretty soon, everyone's going to be a hotspot. And that that would be good for you to remember that. I'm a hotspot. That's what my pastor told me. <laughs> but but you see, here, here's what's happening. 
this incredible transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, where in the Old Testament, to get connected to God, you had to come to Jerusalem. You had to be at the temple. But now what is he saying? Disciples, you're all going to be a hot spot. As, as you go out and you live out the reality of God, as people connect to you, they're going to get directly connected to God. It's incredible transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's something the disciples probably would have never even thought of that that would be the case. That's why they're always interested in staying so close to Jerusalem, and God finally had to say, you, you've got to get out there. When you get out there, people are going to see, see you're a hot spot. And you know somebody like this, don't you? It's just when you get connected to that person, they get you connected to God. And that's what he's saying. You now have the Holy Spirit in you. And when you're connected to other people, they're going to be connected or possibly connected to God. Finally, since the greatest demonstration of glory is the cross... Since the cross exposes the heart of God, then, then a life of a disciple is going to look like this life. The closer you are to this life, the more weighty your life becomes. Which is why Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow after me, what must they do? He must deny himself and what? Take up his cross and follow me. See, when you deny yourself, you're shifting glory. You're not at the center anymore. You're going to take up your cross. You're going to take up the reality. You're going to take up the attributes of God. And as you follow after him, then your life is going to have weight. You're going to expose people to the, the depth and the wisdom of God. It, it's counterintuitive, I know. But the, the, the way to glory is to give up glory. I, I know you've had, you've had this feeling for, for many different ways, but if you were here, ever when Sarah Smith, who's our missionary to Romania, and several of our women are over there now, and she comes up here, and she's very, uh, very unassuming person. She's got a college education. She grew up in America. She's a single woman. And she starts showing the pictures of the kids who basically look like they live in cages. And she said, you know, would you help me as I go over there? Yeah, you, you have that rush of emotion, don't you? Wow, amazing. What's so amazing about that? She's given up glory to benefit other people. She's given up a lot of things that she could have as a young American college-educated woman to go say, you know, instead of holding on to all that, I'm going to go and give it away. I'm going to distribute it to these throwaway kids in Romania. That's glory. And when she walks into an orphanage, you know who walks in? 
the face of Jesus Christ walks in. Why? She's a hotspot. She's bringing it in with her. She can get people connected in a way that's really marvelous. Just some closing questions. Have you seen the glory of God in the face of Christ? Or do you find yourself suspicious of God? Suspicious that he doesn't exist. Suspicious that if he does exist, maybe he just doesn't have your best interest in mind. Are are you chasing cheap substitutes? Are you like the man at the pool? You come, you come here, you see Jesus, he's standing right here. And you pray, oh, Jesus, if you could just, if you could fix my finances, if you could get me that girl, if you could get me into that house, if you could get my way to go all the way, all the time, then I'd be happy. If you can just get me in that pool. That you haven't seen Jesus, if that's where you are. Finally, if you're a disciple... Does your life expose the reality of God? I mean, when somebody connects to you, what are they connecting to? The weight, the attributes, the character of God or or something else? The chief end of man is to glorify God. Let's pray together.